Welcome to the Sensory Change Podcast, where we learn to think differently as a community supporting sensory kids at all levels. We share all sensory matters through discussions and interviews with experts in the field to get practical ideas and simple strategies to implement in day-to-day life. Here is your host and author of Against the Odds, Dana Latter. I'm excited to have Penny Williams with me today. Penny is an award-winning author of four books, a parent coach for children with ADHD and autism, and a mom of a child with ADHD. She also inspires moms to regain their freedom and energies in outdoors retreats. Hello, Penny. Hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> a pleasure. So, Penny, how did you get involved in coaching and teaching other parents about ADHD and autism? I actually have a son with ADHD and autism, um, and that's how I got involved. I never had either one really on my radar before that. Um, my son was diagnosed with ADHD first in 2008, And then six years later, we also got an autism diagnosis on top of that. Um, and as I was trying to research and find the information that I was craving for myself and how to help him and um, different aspects that we should be working on to improve um, symptoms and his um, you know, his experience at school, I was not finding what I needed really. And I got to a point a couple years in where I realized that there really was kind of um, a systematic approach that would have been much more helpful had I known, had anybody shared that anywhere. And that's why I started writing first about it and then eventually started working with parents too. Uh-huh. As a, as a homeschool mom, I totally understand mothers who decide to homeschool. What made you decide to take your son out of school and teach him at home? He's actually doing both. He does half of his day in person at school. Um, he's in high school and he's finishing 10th grade next week. And then we do half online homeschool where it's the online virtual public school, but we do those two classes at home. And it really was about the environment. He was very overwhelmed in the high school setting. You know, there's over 2,000 kids. Um, it's loud. It's crazy. People bump into you. You know, for a sensory kid, it's really overwhelming. And um, he was struggling a lot in that way. And he was also struggling some academically because of executive functioning deficits and um, struggling with kind of the output and turning in work and remembering to do things and that sort of stuff. And the online school affords the opportunity that everything's there and it's already placed in sequential order and what you have to work on, um, which has been super helpful for him with those executive functioning deficits. Uh-huh. And in the school environment, what kind of help does he get? He has um, an individualized education plan, which is special ed here in the U.S., and he gets, um, when he was younger, he got pull-out services. They worked with him on his dysgraphia, which is the handwriting and written expression learning disability. Um, they worked with him a little bit on planning and organization um, and then had some more supports 
in place in the classroom. Like he could, he was allowed to take a break. He um, was allowed to, you know, lay on the floor and do his work instead of sit just right in the chair, things like that, you know, because he was super hyperactive when he was younger. And so he needed a lot more movement than a traditional um, public school setting. And so some of that was accommodated. He also got extended time for tests and for projects and um, sometimes reduced assignments. So if there was a math worksheet that had 40 problems, sometimes he would just do the evens or the odds instead of having to do the whole thing because he has a slow processing speed. And so for him, it would take much longer to do, and which really wasn't fair. You know, if it took him three times as long as a neurotypical peer, that was more like punishment, really, for having a disability. So we did some reduced assignments as well. And now in high school, he... He still has the opportunity to take a break if he needs it. Um, he's been doing a lot better this year, and I don't think he's actually used that maybe once the entire school year. Um, and he has some supports in place. He uses an iPad for written work instead of having to handwrite worksheets and that sort of thing now. And that also gives him the opportunity then to email his assignments in instead of having paper that he's going to lose. And possibly have to redo again. Uh, and does the school uh, take into your account your suggestions? Sometimes they do. It's really tough. In my area, um, I'm in a relatively small town, and we don't have as many extra supports for kids with special needs. You know, we don't have any specialty schools here at all. Um and so, you know, I work really hard to advocate for him, of course, and I usually get those requests met in the document, but it doesn't always translate into each of his classrooms. That's where we kind of struggle. Um, one great thing about high school has been that many of the assignments, especially projects, are first they're, they're spelled out in a rubric step by step, which is amazing for a kid with executive functioning deficits. And then they are typically, many of the teachers now are offering for them to choose um, a way to complete the project. So it could be a PowerPoint presentation, it could be an essay, it could be um, a video. And by allowing kids to choose what works for them, that's been really helpful for my own son because obviously he wouldn't write an essay with dysgraphia and written expression disorder. And that's sort of built-in accommodation at this point that's coming from the school that really serves all of the students, not just special needs students, but that has been really very helpful. Uh -huh. um, I read that for the first years you tried to fix your son and make him fit society expectations. What made you change your, mi your mindset from fixing to acceptance? Mm, it was a long, hard, painful road, actually. I, you know, I think it's a mother's intuition or any parent's intuition to try to fix things. Our kids fall down, they get a scrape, we we put some ointment and a band-aid on it. You know, we we try to fix it and make it better. And there are some things that you just can't do that with. And ADHD and autism are one of those. And you know, for a long time I was just still in that that only mindset that I knew as a parent at that point. And 
I, it's, it's really been a journey. I can't say that there was one specific thing or moment or event that turned the tables for me, but um, reading Ross Green's The Explosive Child was probably the first catalyst to a shift in the way that we were parenting. Um, and then as I got in even further, I realized that you know, what the way that I walk through this journey very much affects the way that my son and everybody else in our home experiences life. If I'm really um, upset about the challenges, if I'm really defeated, if I'm always anxious, if I'm, you know, down um, about different things that are happening or not being able to maybe get his teachers on board with certain accommodations, you know, our kids are very receptive and they soak that up. And it's, it's really modeling that sort of attitude for them, which is so dangerous. It's very detrimental. Um, and I, I think that's really the biggest shift for me. And that's only come in the last two to three years where I realized that my own mindset, my own thinking was really still holding us back. We were doing so much better and I definitely stopped trying to fix it and started working on how do we live successfully with it. Um, but that last piece was really that mind shift for me to say, this is what we have and I fully accept it and I know that we can do something great with it and to be very mindful to stay positive, you know, which, which is a daily chore. Some days it feels like a chore and other days it comes fairly easily and, and really it takes a lot of practice to get there, but, and, and continued practice, you know, this is not easy stuff that we're talking about for sure. Um, but that shift in my own thinking and realizing that, you know, I talk some about choosing if you want to be a victim or if you want to be a survivor. And this is something they talk about in psychology. But um, I was definitely in that victim mode. Why did this happen to my kid? Why is this our life? Um other things in my life too really put me in that victim mode. And once I realized that I could make a choice and I could choose to live differently and it would positively affect my life and my family's, um, that was kind of an epiphany. That was a big turning point for sure. Um, and how do her parents deal with judgment coming from family and friends about the parenting style and the way they raise their kids? That is so hard. It is so hard to manage that judgment, right? It's it's really painful. Um, and for me, I have anxiety and social anxiety. So I have always been on high alert about the judgments of others. Um, so when we added this to the mix, it was really hard at first. But what what helped me the most was to first step back and say, I can't take this personally. My son is not intending to harm me. He doesn't mean what he's saying. Um, and that he is really the most important piece in that scenario at that moment. What he's going through, the hard time that he's having, has to be my focus. And by reminding myself of that, it really helped me to you know, not just kind of block out those other people and that 
potential judgment. You know, we people don't even have to voice their judgment. We assume that it's there so often and get really tangled up in that. Um, it, it It's really hard when it's your family. It's much more difficult when a grandparent or an aunt or uncle or someone in the family is judgmental about your parenting or they say, you know, if you just disciplined him or her more, this wouldn't be an issue, um, which we all know isn't true. But it, you can only change the mind of someone who's open and willing to change. So if that family member is just absolutely closed minded about ADHD or autism or whatever's going on right now, as much as you want to educate them, if they're not really open to it, there's not a lot you can do. Um, what I always advise parents to do is just leave little droplets here and there, um, you know, just a little something, a little tidbit um, during a conversation or something, you know, oh, this happens because um, the environment's overwhelming or whatever it might be and go on and not even have a conversation because a lot of times when we engage in, with those who are judging, who think that we're not parenting right, um, it gets really intense and heated and makes things worse. And so I've found if you just leave a little tidbit and move on, don't don't really pay it any attention, but put it out there, that can sort of start to soften that hard exterior and hopefully get through. But in the end, we have to make the choice to do what's best for our kids. Um, and everybody else just has to kind of deal with that. And, you know, it's easy for me to say that now. It was very hard in the beginning to not be extremely upset by what I perceived other people were thinking of me or my child. Exactly. And how do you help parents keep positive and enjoy their parenting? Mm, that's hard. I actually have a retreat that I do now that I started last year called Purposeful Parent Boot Camp. And it's a four-day um, small group, five to seven moms and I. And we work more on parenting with purpose and intention on accepting what our parenting journey looks like, you know, kind of setting aside, getting rid of those assumptions that we made when our kids were tiny, you know, that they were going to be a baseball star or, you know, an honors student or whatever that might have been and looking at, okay, this is what I have and this is how I can make it great. This is how we can find joy within this life. And we do a lot of work on um, that mindset piece on saying, okay, what is really important to me in my parenting? What are deal breakers? Um, you know, integrity it might be one of them, teaching your child integrity or, you know, anything, whatever matters to you um, and finding that realistic point within that um, connected to the child that we have and then moving forward from that. And then we make an action plan on, okay, if this is, these are my deal breakers, these are my goals based on the child I have, how do I get there? And within that framework, it kind of keeps you more positive. You know, if you're, if you're really working toward a positive goal and you feel like you can achieve it, then that's already putting you in a more positive mindset and helping you to stay on that more positive trajectory. 
Exactly. Now, most parents' approach to meltdowns is the wrong way by being judgmental. How do you guide parents to being less judgmental and help? It's a process. Um, and what I found is that education on what's really happening in our kids' brains during meltdown and even up to meltdown is very insightful to the point that it really helps you to approach it in a, in a more effective way. Um, for example, if our child is having a meltdown, they're very intensely emotional, they might be repeating the same word or phrase over and over. You've tried to talk with them and engage and help them and you can't kind of get through. That it is the point where their amygdala has already hijacked their brain. And when the amygdala is really on fire like that, the rational thinking part of your brain is inaccessible. So my intuition always when my son was having a hard time was to rationalize and talk him out of it, make, you know, talk him into feeling better or being calmer. Right. And it never, ever worked. And I couldn't wrap my head around what else I could do because that was my instinct. And what I figured out was he his brain physiologically wasn't available for that. What I was saying was not getting through to the frontal lobe, to that cognitive portion of the brain. And so knowing that really helped me to then say, okay, I need to be a calm anchor and I need to give him the space to kind of work through it for the brain to cycle out of it. And then, you know, later when you have some distance and some healing from it, you can talk about it and you can try to create some strategies or something to help prevent it later. Um, some kids like they want you there. They don't necessarily want you to talk to them or, you know, have any input, but they want to know that you're there. Some kids want to be completely left alone in those meltdown times. So it depends on your child. And I will say too, if, if there's any safety danger, of course, you have to stay with them and keep them safe, obviously. Um, and then the other piece of it is how do we work to minimize those intense outbursts and meltdowns? And the way to do that is to figure out behavior triggers and, you know, look at what was happening before, what environment were you in, who was there, um, was there a conversation between you and your child or someone else and your child before that, you know, what can you pinpoint that could have been some sort of trigger? And sometimes it's a lot of things. Sometimes it's one thing. Sometimes you just will never have a clue what happened. Um, and then trying to use that information. You know, if if your child um, always melts down when you go to a big store with, you know, lots of shelves and lots of products and bright lights and maybe um, loud over the intercom all the time, you know, there's a lot of sensory things there that could certainly be a trigger and then you either prepare for that in a better way or you don't take your child in those environments until you're able to work through some of those sensory things. Yeah, and children on the autistic spectrum often struggle with social encounter. What kind of advice do you give parents on how to help the kid to integrate socially? My first advice is always to get them 
um, into some sort of activity, club, um, meetup, class, and something that they're interested in. Because what I've found is that when you put your child who's socially awkward into a group where they have something in common from the start, it tends to make some of that social awkwardness not as impactful for the other kids around them. So because they already have a point of connection and they're excited about it, especially younger kids when they're really into um, something they're really passionate about, they they certainly are super excited about it. And it just it it's almost a bonding right from the start. Um, so that can be very helpful. Um, another thing to do if it's um, a school issue, we have worked with our school guidance counselor many times over the years when it's a real struggle to connect with anybody at school. If your child's feeling super down, you know, they say, I don't have any friends, something like that. Enlist the help of the counselor at school because that's part of their job is to facilitate those social relationships um, and to teach social skills. And in some schools, there will be a social skills group or something like that. Or you could find one outside of the school system. And sometimes that can be really helpful. Um, I think sometimes a group setting where the other kids are more similar to our kids, maybe like that social skills group, it helps them to realize that they're not the only one. They're, they're not alone in the struggle. Other people have similar struggles. Um, but just getting involved in something that is kind of a bonding point between them and other kids is really the most helpful thing. And plus, you're, you're, you're providing opportunities for wins that way as well. You're giving them an opportunity to have successful um, social interactions and to really form some bonds. And that only helps our kids who get so much negative messaging throughout their day because of their differences. Yeah. And if you could give one piece of advice to a parent struggling with HDHD, what would that be? Ooh, that's a tough question. <laughs> My list is about a thousand. Um, I think it's really starting with parent mindset because when you're just working on ADHD and you're just working on deficits and weaknesses, you really get stuck in that, in that really heavy mindset, just a heavy, burdensome kind of feeling. And as long as you're walking that path, you're not nearly as helpful to your child as when you are feeling good and hopeful and optimistic. You know, work on self-care for parents, work on building resilience, um, gratitude practice. Studies have shown that just a daily gratitude practice, which can be as simple as writing down one thing you're grateful for that day at the end of every day, actually um, helps people to be happier in general. Um, but, you know, really, we are modeling for our kids and we are telling them how to interpret how to feel almost about their ADHD or their differences. And so that's really a very important place to start. And then once the parent is in the right mindset, everything else automatically is a little bit easier. It's so much easier to go to a school meeting 
and make requests and advocate for my child if I'm feeling optimistic and I'm feeling okay about the fact that my kid has differences than it is if I'm still fighting it and wishing it would go away. They're just two very different places to be in. And one is much, much more effective day to day for our kids. Exactly. And Penny, how could parents contact you? Um, parentingadhdandautism.com is my main website and everything that I do is linked up there. Um, retreats and courses and books and podcast and blog and all of the many things that I've created for myself um, and for parents, of course. Your retreat sounds marvelous. <laughs> yes, we have... Um, We have a big retreat every year, too. This year, we just had it in April. We had 77 moms wow. for the weekend, and it was so, it's amazing. It's just building community. You know, we need each other. Uh -huh. And do you go to some exotic place? Or? We actually don't. Um, we, it's here, lo I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and it's here at a little retreat center um, because it's a lot easier for me to plan and manage if it's local to me. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> And, you know, I found a way to keep it more affordable so that the most moms that possibly can can have that experience. Wow. Penny, thank you so much for taking the time and speaking to me. Thank you so much for inviting me. I enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this Sensory Change podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave a review and don't forget to subscribe. For more information on sensory input and ideas, visit danaletta.com. Join our community this month to get a free seven-day online course packed with practical sensory activities and strategies.